Hi, this is Glenn Lowry, host of The Glenn Show. Got a special treat for you this week. It's a walk down memory lane. You are about to see the very first podcast conversation that John McWhorter and I had in 2007, 14 years ago. We've been doing this for 14 years, my conversation partner, John McWhorter and myself. So enjoy it. Enjoy the youthful good looks of both of your uh, hosts here. Uh, and enjoy the irony of the fact that I am to the left of my friend John McWhorter in this conversation, believe it or not. So that's all I have for you right now. Glenn Lowry of The Glenn Show, a walk down memory lane. Thanks. Okay, uh, so how you doing, John? I am pretty good, Glenn. Very that's good. That's excellent. Me too. Good. What's up? Well, this is column writing day. So I do a weekly column for the New York Sun, just finished one on the state of New York City schools. I um, just polished off two books this summer, one about hip-hop and another one about the history of English, and both of those will be out in the middle of next year. Wait, 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 wait a minute now. A book about hip-hop mm -hmm. and a book about the history of England? Yep. Those to history of the English language, and because of course I'm still a practicing linguist, and then there's oh, the history of English. English, English. I misunderstood. Yeah. I, I thought I'll, you were branching even further afield. <laughs> I'll work on that later. <laughs> I was starting to get tired already. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, those are what I'm up to, and every day there's something different, and that's the way I like it. So writing a column for the Sun, uh, how does that work? You just sort of reading the newspapers and whatever comes to mind, or do you have like a beat that you cover, or what? Well, I've been doing it about a year and a half, and I guess over time it's gotten to the point that there are a few beats, and so I try to do school. It's about race about half the time, half the time not. Sometimes I'll do something about language. Sometimes I'll do something about the state of the culture or the state of political debate. I try to be as wide-ranging as I can, but obviously one of my main billets there is about race issues and the race issues that I've tried to cover over the past seven years. Does the sun have any ideological coloration? Um, yeah. As far as a lot of it, it doesn't apply to the sorts of things that I write about. But yeah, the sun is a right-leaning, but I consider reasonable newspaper with a very pro-Israel tilt in particular. Does that make you a Zionist? <laughs> I have, Just ask him. No, no, I have never, I have never <laughs> written about Israel, and the truth of the matter—you know what's good for you, you never will. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. The truth of the matter is, and I'll say this openly, and I have said this to many people, including my Jewish wife. I think if we could roll the tape back, I would rather that Israel not be where it is. But given where it is now, I do consider the Israelis to have behaved better than their opponents. It's a nasty situation. You mean you would rather that the project of finding a home uh, for the Jewish people not have resulted in mm -hmm. the establishment of Israel in Palestine? Yeah, I think that the, the, the experiment has failed in a lot of ways, and I don't know whether people could have seen that at the time, but ideally that homeland would not have been reestablished and we wouldn't have the problems that we have now. Now, I'm not saying that... Well, yeah. yeah. Now, I'm not saying that they, they, there was some colonialist oppressive effort or anything like that. I just think that ideally there would not be Israel where it is now. But now no, that I, it's there, I must say that I am much more of a fan of the Israelis than the Palestinians. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess we can't necessarily agree about that. Although, 
I, I grant you that uh, if you could roll the tape back, you can imagine other historical developments that might have been much more, um, you know, felicitous, and it might have just been better uh, for everybody involved if it had gone a different way. But there's, there's, you know, powerful historical, ideological, religious, oh, yeah. uh, national narrative reasons why it's worked out the way that it has. So it's hard to imagine what Zionism would have been if it hadn't been, been settling in, uh, in the uh, historical uh, home of the Jewish people. I don't know how there could have been a Zionism. That is absolutely but for that. true. Anyway, that is that's true. not what we came here to talk about, I assume. <laughs> not necessarily. <laughs> oh, but, but wait, no, I've got to keep, I'm not interviewing you, but I really have to ask you the question. So are you a black conservative now? Well, you know, I think that that term is one that I'm stuck with. But from what I've seen over the years, you're considered a black conservative if you have less than savory feelings about affirmative action, and particularly racial preferences. It's interesting because Orlando Patterson has, at Harvard, has a lot of the same views as mine, except that in his work he has the typical bien-pensant feelings about affirmative action. So somehow he never makes the black conservative list, whereas I talk about discontinuing the war on drugs and you know, prisoner re-entry efforts, and I think that socioeconomic preferences are fine, all sorts of things, and yet I'm considered this conservative person because I think that racial preferences are obsolete. I'm stuck with it. Frankly, no. I think that I'm a good liberal a la 19 60. But to tell you the truth, if I'm going to keep being tarred with this black conservative label, it means that I'm considered somewhat media worthy. I'm called on to be the con on panels. I'd say you're going to make it work and for then, you. But not work for me. It means that I can get my thoroughly liberal and I think sensible views out there. And so not only can I not fight this label that I'm given, but in a way it allows me to have my liberal say. You know, I always thought that, I mean, I, as you know, have... Uh, uh, been a black conservative or been called a black, whatever, whatever, mm -hmm. uh, at one time in my own career. And I've always thought there was something kind of silly about that whole thing. Um, silly in the sense that what real conservatism is about is about ordering basic institutions of the state in a particular way. Mm -hmm. Real conservatism is hostile to the New Deal. Mm -hmm. Real conservatism celebrates laissez-faire, uh, not merely as a policy prescription, but as a kind of philosophy, philosophy of sir. government. That's right. uh, you know, real conservatism is blood and guts, uh, kind of nationalist, militarist, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. We could go on. Mm -hmm. And what has that got to do with uh, uh, what Shelby Steele or uh, John McWhorter or anybody else might say about, I don't know what, affirmative action or Very little. Uh, what the sources of the ghetto? It's not, you know, it's, it, in other words, if they say black conservative, when you take a iconoclastic line on a race question, it like belittles what the real political debate is about, which is not about whether you support affirmative action, but it's about the size of the welfare state, Precisely. the progressivity of the tax system, et cetera, et cetera. Now, of course, you could be a black thinker who does feel that the New Deal was a bad idea and that there shouldn't have been any great society programs. That and, makes you conservative. Yeah, and who has certain views about geopolitics. And there are black conservatives like that. I don't think it's unfair to say that Shelby Steele would not be uncomfortable being, being labeled in that way. And I'm a great admirer of Shelby Steele. But but actually, the number of black thinkers who are of those sorts of positions are pretty small. And yeah, I think that the labels really just don't fit. Well, Thomas Sowell, I think you'd have to, Clarence Thomas, you obviously have to put in that category. That's right. uh, yeah. And he's a conservative. Mm -hmm. Small, small who's number also of people. Black. 
But in terms of the whole list of the sorts of people who are asked to be, used to be asked to be on news and notes, for example, or get invited to conferences, etc., the number of people who have those views is small. They tend to work outside of academia, to broach a topic that I imagine we'll be coming back to. And in the meantime, I think that most of us are basically working towards the same sorts of things, and we have a certain basic faith in the role that government can play to some extent and consider the New Deal to have been a good thing and the Great Society to have at least been a good idea. I think that it was a good idea. A lot of it didn't work. And so, yeah, I think that the liberal conservative aspect of things is based on a kind of cartoonization of things, a kind of cowboys and Indians impulse that most of us have. And as far as I'm personally concerned, I just try to do my work, and we'll see how things come out in the future. Well, you know, there's this um, this idea out there that I'm not sure is entirely crazy, which is that, uh, uh, of course, everyone's autonomous and should think for themselves, and it's a free country, and people's ideas should be heard and debated on the merits, and because a person is black or white or whatever, should not uh, impact materially how you assess the validity of their arguments, etc. But there's this notion out there about loyalty, about group fealty in some sense, about sort of sticking together, whatever. Do you think that's also poppycock? I mean, do we have, as African-American or black or Negro <laughs> intellectuals, commentators, columnists, do we have any special responsibilities? I mean, is there anything that you wouldn't say, even if you thought it was true because you thought it might do harm to, quote, your people, close quote, this kind of thing? Mm, that's interesting. Yeah, I think that we do have a certain kind of loyalty, but I think that general conceptions of how that loyalty should express itself are rather narrow. Like, for example, as a linguist, I know that black English and its grammar is a legitimate grammar. It is not bad grammar. That's something that's easier to understand if you're a linguist than if you happen not to be. Therefore, I am very careful about saying anything about black speech that is critical in my work, because I don't like the idea of reinforcing a notion, which people hold on all sides of the political spectrum, that there's something wrong with the way many black people talk. And in general, I do think that there's a certain loyalty, but unfortunately, what I work against, um, and what I think you have felt yourself to be working against maybe more in the past than now, is an idea that Racism exists that it's a conclusive obstacle to the black poor and the black working class achieving, and that therefore our job is to call for the elimination of racism rather than teaching people how to do their best despite the racism. And I think that's where the sticking point is. For a lot of people, if you're a black commentator or a writer, in a way, you're supposed to be mentioning racism and kind of grabbing white yeah. people's collars every 15 seconds. You're not doing your and job. If you're not, you're not doing holding that, the man's feet to the fire. You're not doing your job, and that's where I think the rub is. Well, yeah, I, I see what you're saying, and you're right. I, I certainly know uh, what you're talking about. I mean, I've, I've experienced this very same reaction. But I, I, I and, and the way I think about it is that it's a battle over the narrative. Mm -hmm. It's a battle over how we're going to tell the story. Mm-hmm. Right, history doesn't speak for itself. It has to be somehow spun out, and uh, there are different stories that one can tell. And one story about the maladies of the sort of bottom rungs of American society, and about the the so-called uh, black underclass, and so forth. One story about that is the racism uh, did us wrong. Uh, got your mama. Whose fault is it? But the white man says there's that story. Mm -hmm. So people are invested in that story, and if you come around being, you know, literally an iconoclast, I mean, smashing up this icon. Uh, you're going to get uh, you're going to get a negative reaction, mm -hmm. but I would you know I don't think that's the only thing that's uh, that's at stake. In other words, um, uh, uh, 
sometimes, I mean, because there are other stories that are uh, like the uh, the uh, counterpoint to the racism is explains everything story, mm-hmm. like the Horatio Alger story. This right. is the land of opportunity. Why don't you get busy? Right. The story that says, well, if the Asian immigrants can do it, if the whatever, why don't you people do? You know, I'm looking right. at inner cities. I look here. I look there. Uh, or the story that says uh, we had the civil rights movement, you had Martin Luther King, now, but, uh, those bills right. got passed, and we're out of that, and let's move on to the next case. Right. Those are narratives, too. And, you know, you know the, the narrative that says we're locking up these thoughts because they're a threat to our civilization, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. You know, uh, so, so it's not as if there's only one narrative out there to which your responsibility is, if you're a free-thinking person, yeah. to speak against. I mean, it's like... You know, there's a contest of narratives, and yeah. sometimes it's a question of where you stand. And the hardest thing is that those two narratives are ones that both sit very well into the limits of human cognition. I think there are two <laughs> dangerous narratives. One is racism, 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 and until we have a perfect world, nothing can happen. That narrative, I think, is very dangerous for black people and for any people. The other dangerous narrative, which worries me every bit as much, is black people need to just buck up and take care of themselves the way Korean immigrants do, and until they do that, then basically they're just going to have to stew in their own juice. That won't do either. Unfortunately, it's something in between, and it's hard to get the in-between across to people who are not interested in actually doing thinking about the issue. And that is, I think, both yours and my greatest challenge. The narratives are complex at this point. Do you spend much time countering this other narrative that you think is equally uh, problematic? Yeah, I do. Because I, th- I, I miss that, John. You know... I don't know if you would say that if you had some reason, and of course nobody ever will, but if you had some reason to read every column I've written for The Sun since last July. And one of the biggest challenges for me is whenever I am doing conservative radio, and I do do it, and I do it a lot, my job is Hmm. to, one, be a guest, but two, to quietly but decisively counter the host's tendency to adopt that buck-up narrative. I try to teach the host, because I think that's part of our job. And any forum where they're trying to fit me into the notion that black people need to just shape up, I resist it. I will not say anything like that in public, because I think it's, it's frankly stupid and unfeeling. So yeah, that is something which is very much there. And I think it's there even in my books. I maybe I don't hit the note hard. Well, and, and I, you know, I'm going to look at the Sun columns, and I well could have missed it. I'm glad to hear it, frankly. Uh, but let me ask you this, because you say conservative radio, and you know, I spent many years. Uh, I'm sure not doing as much as you. But, uh, you know, I spent many years being the kind of guy that they call up. You know that, yeah. yeah. You know, to come on Bill O'Reilly or to come on right. uh, this or that. Exactly. And, you know, Al Sharpton would have done something idiotic or, you know, some, something somewhere. And they, you to know, my life, and the, right. Yeah. And, and, and I'm, the, the, thing, the thing is, uh, sometimes I feel really, you know, I didn't feel all, the, all that good coming out of there, even though I, I certainly did believe what I said. I didn't say anything <laughs> I didn't believe, but I felt like I was like, you know, being used is, is one way of putting it. I mean, like, I was playing a certain kind of role. Mm-hmm. You, you know, I mean, like, I was not, uh, they were looking at me 
in a functional capacity. Oh, yeah. You know, let's get this guy in here. He happens to be black. And there's a kind of racist aspect to this whole thing, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. yeah. Get him in here to say stuff that we might not want to say ourselves. We don't want to be called racist by anybody yeah. or whatever, whatever. And I'm not, you know, I'm not a trained monkey. I'm a, I'm a guy who's thinking for myself. And, you know, I can disagree with conservatives just as much as I can disagree with black people, yeah. you know. So don't uh, pigeonhole me in that way, I would feel And, sometimes. you know, the, the only difference between you and me is that because I came along a little later and had read a lot about you and the others and what you went through. I knew from the beginning to be wary of that. And actually, the story of my my trajectory is in 2000, I wrote Losing the Race, and I was immediately swept up by that very circuit who expected me to say those very things, the new darling yeah. black conservative. Over the next two or three years, the story really was that places like the National Review and O'Reilly learned that I'm not that dependable, because when they have called me up and asked me to take that particular kind of really black-bashing view, any view that implies that black people need to just shape up, I just won't do it. I'm, not, I'm just not that dependable. Now I'm happy to say that those people know it. And I turn down as many appearances with them as I take, because I don't want to play that role. That's not to say that sometimes Bill O'Reilly is not correct on a particular thing. And when he is, I will go on that show. A stopped clock is correct twice a day, John. No, no, that's <laughs> There are times when he has got the right message. I won't let him make me say something I don't believe, but the message gets out there. You have to use the media. And as you know, you don't get paid to be on TV. But everybody doesn't read books. As a matter of fact, most people don't read 300-page nonfiction books, and so you have to use other venues. But I know what you mean, and I try very hard not to be used in that way. I'm pretty sure I'm not. Okay. That's good to hear. And I, I, I can vicariously enjoy this idea that, ah, you thought I was conservative, but I said something you didn't expect. Oh, and you don't want to call back? Okay. <laughs> it really does. <laughs> That's kind of okay. Yeah. You have to so, disappoint people sometimes. Yeah, you mentioned earlier that uh, you left the academy, uh, and uh, I don't know how much people will know about your uh, your professional biography. You were a tenure professor in linguistics at Berkeley, mm-hmm. at UC Berkeley, a very prestigious academic post. That's right. And you resigned your tenure. I sure did. You you leapt away. You're 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 playing without a net or something yeah. out there in the real world. <laughs> What's that? I, it's terrifying to me the prospect of not being in my sinecure. No, I'm just kidding. But <laughs> tell me what the real world is like out there. Well, the real world, Glenn, is one where I get so much work done because I do not have to sit and go through stacks of files. I don't have to pretend to be interested in who the next assistant vice dean of social sciences is, I get to do my work, and I do a lot of it in workaholic fashion. Now, I do miss students. I miss office hours. I miss the performance of teaching. And obviously, there was a certain status in being Professor McWhorter. But the truth is, once I realized that I had a mission in terms of being race guy, if you call it, I realized that, first of all, there was the mundane fact that it's better to be on the East Coast because of the media. And the nature of my linguistics work happens to be such that I can do it by myself. It's not the sort of thing that requires a squadron of grad students or something like that. So as long as I'm near a library and I have my brain with me, I'm fine. So I still do linguistics. I actually get more done than I did in the past. And it was really the right move. Needless to say, I can say this now with ease, but in 2003 when I made the decision, it was absolutely wrenching. It's the hardest thing I ever had to do. The phone calls I had to make, frankly, I had to drink beforehand. I had a nasty pain. You mean like to mentors or people who would be disappointed at your decision? My God. And as you can imagine, 
Um, there, talk about narratives. There is the narrative of the evil black conservative who gets taken up by the right and gets a quote-unquote cushy think tank job and chills for conservatives. And I never thought that I would be somebody who would be part of that narrative. And let's face it, that's exactly what I did, except it's a myth that think tank employees get paid these millions and millions of dollars. But I had to realize <laughs> that from then on that's what would be said about me, but I did it. But actually, yeah, it's nice. Sometimes, you know, Glenn, I get a little lonely. You know, I work from home. And well, that's I'm the thing. Not surrounded you know, by thinkers anymore. I would, I, you know, I think I'd miss graduate students. I mean, mm-hmm. people writing dissertations, doing Watching research. You know, I'd, I'd miss the opportunity to teach mm-hmm. technical material that's at the frontier of my discipline to people who are eager to get it. Mm-hmm. I'd miss interaction with colleagues. You know, seminars, people coming through, presenting work that's ongoing. I really miss that. Yeah. Uh, the stimulation of that, you know, of the back and forth that goes on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, that's hard, and not that, all people would like it. And the internet can substitute for that somewhat. Like this would have been harder, and I don't know if I would have done it, say, fifteen years ago. But you can learn a lot about what's going on out there through the web. But it's not the same as actual people, and I do miss that. I miss that more and more. But I do know that I made the right decision. You're dissing, you're dissing us, John, by turning your back on the academy. You make it sound like nothing special is going on over here. That. Uh, you know, the Manhattan Institute is our equal. Mm-hmm. We don't think so. Mm-hmm. We think the Manhattan Institute and other such places, fine places that they are, making a contribution, are nevertheless not as clever as we are, not as mm-hmm. profound, not as uh, professionally credentialed, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, we think some of your colleagues at the Manhattan Institute are flax. Mm-hmm. You know, what do you make of that? Well. <laughs> I've heard of that argument, and of course right. I have to assess it on a case-by-case basis. I mean, obviously there is a certain kind of concentration and erudition and depth of attention that pretty much only happens if you are an academic. But yeah. to tell you the truth, I frankly think that when it comes to the sorts of questions I'm interested in, which is race and history and sociology and where we're going to go in the future... So much of the work in the academy is biased towards a certain racism forever premise that I think the lack of academic profundity on the side of the think tanks and the bias in the academy are equal disadvantages and that you just have to assess the work in terms of how it works. And so, for example, in my latest book, um, Winning the Race, I do take on academic sociologists and political scientists in terms of how they view race in this country and history and what needs to be done and the role that racism plays. And I openly say in the book that I know that my research now, as a linguist, it cannot replace 20 or 30 years of going to conferences and sociology, etc. But, you know, I can read, and I am an obsessive, and so I went through great amounts of material. And as far as I'm concerned, if there's something wrong with my analysis in that book, then I would like to see it proven. Now, I can't speak for my other Manhattan Institute colleagues, but frankly, I I think I'm right, or at least that the views are worth being put on the table. I became junior academic in doing that particular work. Let me make a couple of observations. I, I don't share your uh, high opinion of winning the race, as I think you know. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, I don't want to spend all our time debating fine points about that, but, you know, I mean, we can, you know, whatever. We'll see where it goes. But uh, the thing I was going to say was you wouldn't, I think, a person wouldn't be saying this if they were um, an earth scientist mm-hmm. who had a different view about global warming mm-hmm. than the most of the people on the corridor of their geology department. Mm-hmm. 
wouldn't be saying this if they were, um, uh, you know, a neuro neurologist or, you know, a kind of brain-cutting psychologist who uh, might have, you know, be more inclined toward taking genetic transmission of this or that seriously, right. taking, you know, heritability seriously. They, they'd be on the outs relative to the politics of most people in their department, but right. I think they wouldn't uh, come to the conclusion that it, it's kind of a, you know, it's a, it's a, a close call between the expertise uh, and depth of the academy on the one hand and the, the kind of uh, lack of political correctness that you see at universities uh, but couldn't find it. Thanks. So, so, you know, you say you're still doing linguistics, but I'm wondering if all you were doing were, were linguistics. Uh -huh. You know what I'm saying? Uh -huh. if, if you uh, were sort of a dedicated scientist in a kind of, you know, a very focused way uh -huh. and that's all you were doing and you weren't doing this public intellectual thing, if, if you could reach the same conclusion. I'm not quite sure I understand what you mean, but do, do you mean how would I feel about somebody doing work on linguistics who didn't have training and asserting that their ideas were just as valid? You, I guess I kind of mean that indirectly. What I mean is that whereas uh, if five people have five different ideas about what to do about the ghetto, yeah. um, in some sense we can find it out in the newspaper or you know, we can be generalists who kind of read history and read sociology and we can find it out. Mm -hmm. And we can at least think that we're kind of on an even footing. I mean, again, as I say, I don't necessarily share all your evaluations of these sociologists sure. that you write about in your book. Uh, sometimes I think you underestimate them. But in any case, you can, you know, you're at least in the game. Right. Whereas if we were doing something that was more technical and more specialized, mm -hmm. something that where, uh, you know, it was really possible definitively to know more and prove more, mm -hmm. right? Because you did control experiments or because you developed a theory mm -hmm. or whatever it might be. And where you were evaluated by your peers, mm -hmm. you know, the fact that someone had tenure at Berkeley or Stanford or Chicago yeah. would weigh in. And the reason it would weigh in is because you think that the vetting that those institutions do actually has information that uh, the typical person on the street wouldn't have. Yeah. So it's something about, about how expertise gets parsed in different institutional settings. Mm -hmm. I mean, one reason I'm suspicious of, of think tank research sometimes and of uh, the, the sort of programs that are being pushed there mm -hmm is that I think uh, people are trying to make an end run mm -hmm. around uh, what is really a very necessary vetting process, like peer review oh, of your research yeah. at journals and things of this kind. They're making an end run around that. And then there, uh, uh, Charles Murray, I think of, in his work on intelligence, is a classic example of this. Yeah. And then they sort of defend themselves by saying, well, those are a bunch of politically biased people anyway, why should I have to submit to their view? When in fact the issue is, was your statistical analysis accurate? Were your data actually saying what you said that they said? Oh. Did you really identify causality in the ways that you claimed? Oh dear. You know, yeah. things like oh, that. Oh, yeah. You say, oh dear, why? Because, <laughs> un unfortunately, sometimes, Glenn, based on the world that we actually live in, the America that we actually live in, the academics, despite the statistics, and you know, God bless statistics, are not necessarily correct, and the way that we know this is not because of how the numbers come out, but because of how society comes out. And so, for example, you mentioned Charles Murray, and yeah. there's the bell curve. But what about Losing Ground, which was yeah. the most notorious address of the problem with welfare as we knew it? Now, as far as I know, 
The Academy was not terribly interested in the idea of a true, from the ground up, reform of the way welfare was working, such as what we've had since 1996. And there was a great deal of work showing what sorts of disasters might occur if we made any real changes. And statistics were able to show that. That's what statistics can do. Charles Murray had an idea, which certainly was not based upon the depth of analysis that, say, a Robert Greenstein had. But the media and the government yeah. picked up his ideas. And one thing we know now is that since 1996, black child poverty is down. More poor black women are working. It's not perfect. But I don't, think, perfect. I don't think that we can say that what happened in 1996 was wrong. I think it's agreed. No, that I think you're right. I back. think, and, and I, I believe, frankly, um, John, that that is the view of at least the centrist uh, research community in economics and sociology and policy studies now. about welfare reform. Not perfect, now. but uh, looks like it, on the whole, has been a change for the better. Right. But let me say a couple of things about Murray. I, I, I mean, Losing Ground was a very important book. I tell my students that the most influential social scientist, in so far as public policy is concerned, social policy, in the last That's true, uh, yeah. quarter of the 20th century is Charles Murray, and he never uh, held a chair at any of these fancy universities. And it's, he writes uh, extremely he's well. He's also brilliant, you must and, admit. Uh, and he's a very effective polemicist. But, but I think much of what was in Losing Ground, I want to say a couple of things. Much of what was in Losing Ground was wrong from a scientific point of view, in my opinion. That's true. Uh, I want to say also that welfare reform was also fueled intellectually by people like David Elwood, who was mm -hmm. my colleague at Harvard when I was there. Mm -hmm. uh, his book, Poor Support, was very influential, I know, on Bill Clinton's uh, thinking about welfare reform, and uh, Elwood then went on, along with Mary Jo Bain, his colleague, to serve in the Clinton administration. Mm -hmm. uh, now, they had some differences with the way welfare reform finally came out right. of a Republican Congress, mm -hmm. and they didn't uh, necessarily jump for joy when President Clinton signed that particular piece of and legislation. Clinton didn't really want to, right. He didn't, and it, it, it didn't have, it was a compromise, of course, as a piece of legislation might have to be when the president's a Democrat exactly. and the Congress is in Republican control. But uh, also uh, people like Lawrence Mead, whom you may know. I don't know. I know, do you know well, yes. You know Larry Mead? Yeah. yeah, and he's a political scientist who's based in the academy, uh, who at NYU wrote these important books uh, from a relatively conservative point of view, although I always thought of Larry not as a conservative, as a realist mm -hmm. uh, in terms of his analysis. So, But that's just it, Glenn. Larry is often reviled. You know, he, he, he's considered to be politically incorrect. Now, I, I get that, and I'm, I want to cede that point. There is a problem in the academy of demanding fealty to certain political positions to the uh, um, detriment mm -hmm. of uh, the independence and the sort of free-ranging uh, kind of argument that you need. Mm -hmm. I think there are also many countervailing influences, not only in the think tanks, in the academy itself. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm here at Brown, and it's a hotbed of political correctness mm -hmm. and so forth. It fulfills all the stereotypes that might be in people's minds mm -hmm. out there about what a liberal Ivy League institution would be. On the other hand, I've got uh, staunchly conservative students mm -hmm. and, and uh, colleagues who are, you know, at the frontiers of their profession and who are respected. And, uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think that my students are being poorly served by coming here to study mm -hmm. in that they're going to be indoctrinated with some party line. Well, uh, Not if they don't want to be. Not if they simply lift their heads up from the ground and look around because mm -hmm. the resources are here to counterbalance that. But, you know, Glenn, there's so much involved where what we're really talking about is what students may not be taught. And so, for example, let's say that welfare reform has been a good thing, if a far from perfect thing, for the women that we're talking about. Now it's about 
the men. Now, as far as I can see, one of the most important aspects of helping the men is prisoner reentry programs. That has to become a new gospel among us. And I also feel that we really need to do something about the war on drugs because that has a lot to do with the high incarceration rates. Now, the last time, I, now, the last time I checked, what students are being taught in universities about race is still the same old business about the factories moving away, William Julius Wilson. We read uh, Savage Inequalities by Jonathan Kozel with the myth that the reason that schools and minority communities don't do well is because they're not given enough money. It's that same sort of litany, and I don't think that a student would be hearing about, nor do I think that a grad student is encouraged to study, say, prisoner re-entry efforts. Which ones work? Which ones don't? Not true, Joe. Work on this? Is there really a dominant strain? Well, well, dominant, I don't know. I mean, what, what, I, can te- what I can tell you is that uh, I teach an undergraduate class on crime and punishment here. Mm-hmm. I'm very interested in prisons. I, I gave the Tanner Lectures in Human Values at Stanford earlier this year mm-hmm. on this subject. Uh, you know, I'm, I write books, too, and I'm mm-hmm. going to be writing about this. So, so uh, I teach my kids a lot. I mean, we spend a lot of time talking about prison reentry issues. I bring people into the classroom who work in, you know, nonprofits around here in Providence and in other places. Mm-hmm. I bring in former prisoners mm-hmm. to talk to these people. I bring in prison guard union uh, and uh, prison administration officials to talk to them about what's actually going on. And I'll tell you this, and you'd be, I think, hardened to a certain degree. Uh, I had a former inmate mm-hmm. uh, who's now out and working for one of these nonprofits mm-hmm. uh, come into my class and uh, talk about. Uh, he had written a book called uh, uh, "The New Jack's Guide to Life Inside Prison." Hmm. Okay, so he's an old head who's been in for eight years or whatever when he wrote this, this book. And this book was or an older book. Uh, it's. I think it's probably the last five Something years. I don't like think he's been out that long. Right. Uh, it's on my website uh, as one of the readings for my punishment course if a person wanted to look at okay. it. But what I'm saying is, he, the, one of the first things he said to the students, he says, you're going to hear all about root causes arguments mm-hmm. uh, in uh, classes like this. Mm-hmm. And he says, I think they have their place. But I'll tell you one thing. When I'm talking to somebody who is not yet in prison or who just got out, mm-hmm. I never talk to them about root causes. Mm-hmm. I never talk to them about, you know, large-scale social forces or whatever, whatever. What I talk to them about is, are you going to the GED class tomorrow mm-hmm. morning? Because that's the only thing that matters yep, and that idea, for that guy. Is, is he, is he going to get up and go to the class? That perspective is out there on the vine, I think, so more and more. And Bill I'm saying it's at Brown. That's the point I want to make is that the, the kids who are coming yeah. to the liberal bastion of Ivy League uh, political correctness are getting that okay. in their classroom. In your particular classroom, and because you are brilliant, you have sense enough <laughs> oh, to do that. God, but, and I mean it. But the fact is, how do you think what that prisoner said would go over at a sociology conference? You know, everybody would ham and haw and sputter and say that they, something they patronize him probably. They'd pat him on the head yeah, and, they, and metaphorically and they'd say, yeah, show. thanks for coming, right, but you know, no one would take him seriously. Yeah, and I think that that is very much a reality about the very small realm of academia, except for a few people who know how to think for themselves. And that is what worries me about what academics have to tell us about race at this point. But let me go back, because, you know, I think your line is like, maybe a little, with due respect, too ideological on this issue of uh, the jobs moved out and so forth. Yes, there is a line, a very simplistic line, and your undergraduate at your typical place who's read a couple of Bill Wilson's books or whatever can spout it easily, and it goes as you said. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, let me simply observe that um, the the economic transformation of manufacturing Mm -hmm. 
that begins with factories moving out of the center cities and into the metropolitan area, mm. out of the northeast and midwest and to the south of the United States, and then ultimately offshore. China, right. This is a massive thing that's happening in our time. I mean, it's a huge transformation, and yeah. it has far-reaching implications, not just in this country and not just for poverty, but all over the world. I don't see the evidence. And and, and 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 to to say, you know, if I'm looking at the if I'm looking at post 1950 urban America, uh-huh. to find a place within my account mm-hmm. of the transformation of post 1950 urban America, the troubles of the cities, the mm-hmm. uh, so-called black underclass, and all of that, to find a place within my account for these big forces of huge economic transformation, seems not only appropriate. Or desirable, it seems absolutely necessary. An account that left that out, to my mind, no. would be a woefully incomplete. Oh no, no, it's a uh, story. No, it's, it's quite complete, Glenn. I see. I'm sorry. I honestly see no place for that in the narrative at all. Not because I have some problem with it, the basic idea of it, but because it just what, it doesn't seem to explain anything. And it's not just me, but there are academic studies which show again and again that the movement of those low-skill manufacturing jobs can account for, at best, one-third of black male unemployment. There are various studies along that's that line. That's a lines. big number, John. But still, it's only one-third, and what about yeah, the other Yeah, well, that's two-thirds? a big number, John. Lot- Nobody said it was the only thing going sure, on. but why would we want to focus particular attention upon something that contributes one-third, which can't be changed, as opposed to showing well, people well, what they on. can now, do. Now the debate would be not whether, as a matter of fact, it had a role. It had a role one-third, let's say. Let's just stipulate that. Mm-hmm. The debate would be about how much do you want to emphasize that relative to other things. That's and a fair question. And, and hold, on, hold on, let me just finish the thought. The thought is that that question turns in part on what do we think that we could actually do mm-hmm. to make things better, mm-hmm. right? Yes. I don't want to emphasize something I can do nothing about. And if you want to argue... Well, these economic transformations are just the, something that is a fact of nature in the world Which that we live are. in. You can't change it. Let's focus attention elsewhere. That's an argument I'm prepared to listen to. Yeah, and therefore my argument, which I have made quite a bit over the past year and a half, is we have to teach people to, we have to point people to the equivalence of those jobs nowadays that do not require a college degree, where maybe with some vocational school, which you can get an easy loan for, you can do. Just like the guy who used to work at the Ford plant, now you can be a cable repairman, now you can be a building inspector, and many of those jobs will provide for a thoroughly middle-class existence as long as you stay in them. And of course, obviously there are people who aren't aware of the existence of these jobs and how to get to them, but they're eminently gettable, as, again, many people in and outside of the think tank world have shown. And so for me to look at the factories moving away, and as you say, this is just inevitably how economies work, and to write whole books about that and for it to be this op-ed line and for people to have this mental schema of the factory shutting down and all the guys standing around outside it with absolutely nowhere to work. It's a big deal, John. absolutely poisonous, and I've studied Indianapolis. Poisonous? Yeah, I've studied studied Indianapolis to the point of really studying old maps of Indianapolis, looking at where the factories used to be, talking to people in Indianapolis. The factories didn't move away, and they've got the same grinding inner city problems. And I, let me finish this thought. Same grinding inner city <laughs> you know, problems, I I feel like, <laughs> problems that we are so worried about, and this is the important thing. It's not like they only have two-thirds of the problems, Glenn. We're talking about it being one-third. It's not like it's, it's only two-thirds there. It's well, just as bad uh, as anywhere else. Let, let, let me bracket Indianapolis. Maybe we can come back to it. I, I think there's a problem there, but uh, you know we can probably disagree about that. Um, what I want to say is that um, uh, if I were looking at the working class in England mm-hmm. and I wanted to understand underclass problems in the working class of England, okay, 
and I didn't pay attention to the uh, the uh, what was happening with jobs, to whether or not some kid who finishes high school maybe signs up for a vocational program and gets into a union mm-hmm. can't be making a middle class wage after three, four, or five years of training mm-hmm. because those jobs aren't there, mm-hmm. um, and. Um, uh, all that comes in that train, I wouldn't be able to, I think, get very far just trying to explain the social history of modern, uh, of modern Great Britain uh, if, I didn't, if I didn't take those factors into account. Likewise, if I were trying to understand economic development somewhere in Africa or in Asia, and it certainly has cultural and um, uh, other societal influences, uh, but, uh, but understanding what's going on in global markets would be essential for me to get a grip on that. So now why is it that uh, when we come to describing urban America, you, you find it poisonous to entertain? Okay. Again, I'm saying we may not have to put as much emphasis as Bill Wilson would put, but you find it poisonous even to entertain that this could be. It's, not, it's as if you say, if I tell that, people will use it as an excuse not to do these other things that they need to do. That's why I use the word poison. And we're talking about differences in intent. In terms of historiography, of course you have to talk about the change in manufacturing jobs and their location. In itself, I find it very interesting. And you could also analyze it as a challenge that black people have had to face because they had to learn to get, we had to learn to get different kinds of jobs. But yeah, you're right. There's a part of me which I guess is an advocate. I want black people to be able to move ahead in a world where I can see that it's possible, but a lot of people have lost their way. And as part of that effort, I suppose my linguistics is pure, geeky academics. When it comes to race, I've got a mission. I don't want people thinking about the factories as an obstacle, because I don't think that they are. And it's a mental schema that fits so well into the mind. So yeah, it's dangerous, because for a lot of people, it's not the factories went away, economies changed, now they're different jobs. It's my father worked in a factory, now there's no factory job, and so I'm going to go out on the street and sell drugs because that's the best society offers me. And that's a schema that we know is very powerful in society. It, there's a lot of that in gangster rap. And it does worry me. I do think of that particular message as a kind of poison. Maybe that makes me unacademic on the question, but I do try uh, to study it. I, I, I find it interesting, uh, John, I really do, because at the root, if I understand you, and I think I do, is, uh, is a deep concern about changing for the better the lives of uh, poor black people. This is commendable. This, you know, this is a good thing, and I'm not patronizing you in saying it. I'm just saying straight out, straight out. This is a good thing. And this idea, and if we think about it for a minute, I think we can find a little bit of paternalism in it, and I don't mean that pejoratively. Hmm. This idea that I don't want to tell people a story, even if it has some merit, because if they invest too much in that story, hmm. you know, they're not going to do what needs to be done. You know, uh, I I think there's there's a precedent for that. I mean, I think you could find other areas of American life where you might similarly, in order to activate agency at the individual level, Mm -hmm. you don't want to attribute too much weight to, you know, external processes as causal agent because you want to tell the person, look, you know, there are things that you can do to make yourself better. But there's a it seems to me that there's also a downside to the tack that you've taken, which would be that, uh, uh, and I wonder what you think about it, which would be the following. Mm-hmm. Now we have the inner city, or we have blacks, or whatever. We have minorities, and they're disadvantaged. There's an underclass, or whatever. People are exercised about it. But we also have the vast majority of poor people who are not black, the vast majority of people who are at the economic margins, in and out of unemployment, on welfare rolls, mm-hmm. are not black. Mm-hmm. And to the extent that it's a useful thing for people 
across the racial lines to see their uh, economic and social situations as similar and to see their pl- their fate as shared, mm-hmm. their plight as common, mm-hmm. so that they can organize and pull themselves together in ways in new formations that cut across these lines. Mm-hmm. To that extent, talking about the problem in these broader terms, you know, like, um, you know, what has mm-hmm. the government, we know what they've done for the rich with the tax cuts, what have they done for you? Yeah. This kind of talk. It's kind of undercut, you know, when we put it into a kind of racial and cultural thing. And this may seem odd to you coming from me. People think of me as always being, you know, a guy who wants to talk about black this and black that. But I think that the deepest problems that we we have in the country that we can solve together through our political action are problems that cut across racial lines. And so I I like these narratives that get people thinking about bigger um, uh, inter-subjective, uh, uh, you know, social oh, and economic dynamics instead of these things that just preach to people about, well, make yourself better, which oh. may be a good thing for them to hear, but it's not politically very Oh, I, I get that. And this is more, you know, maybe cold-eyed, hard-headed pragmatism from me. I see what you mean, that it would be useful if we were talking more about poverty than about what gets the black man down, etc. And the only reason that I do not embrace that, this whole John Edwards thing, is because I lack imagination, and I don't see a historical precedent for any kind of lasting cross-racial alliance between the poor. You think about what happened in the 1920s and 30s, you think about what did not happen in the 1880s and 1890s. I can't see it happening, and frankly, Glenn, to tell you the truth, I, especially last year, I did a fair amount of visiting um, prisoner reentry programs and spending time talking to people and watching training sessions and things like that. And to tell you the truth, Glenn, sitting in those rooms with um, black and brown, mostly men who've done time and looking at the problems that they face... The idea that in my lifetime or yours, we're going to fix it so that those guys see themselves as the poor rather than black guys, is just impossible for me to see. And maybe that's not a good thing, but the self-conception there is as a what Stanley Crouch would call a Negro. And we can't change that, certainly not anytime soon. It, it's not just their self-conception, it's also how they're conceived. I, I mean, I think it's every bit as important, or maybe even more important, that your typical voter uh, who doesn't live in the ghetto sees them as not so different from me and you. Yeah, maybe a little screwed up. Yeah, maybe a little nips. Yeah, yeah, but still, you know, pretty much if we were in their situation, we'd probably be struggling with some of the same challenges and, you know, uh, let's cut them a little slack or give them the benefit of the doubt or give them a second chance or whatever. You say it's not to be? If I follow you, it's the, the, or, the mainstream white person does not see the poor black guy as just the poor. They see a poor black person. Is that what you're saying? Oh, no, no. I know, they, I know that's what they see. I wish they didn't, though. I, yes. I think they're wrong to see that way. They may be, but we can't fix that. Maybe that I don't know that that's true. Is it really true that we can't fix that? How would that? we fix it, Glenn? I mean, really. Well, 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 well I, how? I don't know. Okay, that's just the honest answer. I don't know how we would fix right. it. But I'm not prepared to rule out a priori that we could. But I'm in a hurry. I, let me, I just want to give some examples. Okay. Uh, if you had said in 1958 mm-hmm. that um, women and their desire to be um, uh, uh, freed of all of the burdens of uh, expectation and limitation and prejudice and discrimination and so forth mm-hmm. associated with what roles were fit and not fit for them, mm-hmm. that the consciousness of people needed to be raised in such a way that when they looked at a girl and saw a daughter... Mm-hmm. They realized, just as much as if they had seen a son, that uh, that was their child and that their child's future was, uh, you know, 
uh, at stake with respect to how we resolve some of these issues about uh, women. Before Betty Friedan, mm -hmm. if you had said that, I think a lot of people would have said, I don't know how you're going to get there from here. Mm -hmm. If you had said about gays mm -hmm. 15 years ago mm -hmm. that uh, the issue of is their way of life, their style of life, their choice or orientation of uh, living with respect to sexuality merely another alternative way to live that deserves to be respected mm -hmm. and accommodated to the extent that anybody else don't stop trying to tell them to be like you let them be mm -hmm. uh, that that idea could uh, catch and could have currency and could maybe even become a dominant idea in this country which I think it will inevitably become well, uh, people would have said you're mad right. they would have said you're mad yeah. so I don't know why it is that with better leadership I mean now if every time there's some disturbance uh, like the Gina Six situation or some incident like the Duke lacrosse players that Al Sharpton holds a news conference or someone like him goes on uh, on uh, O'Reilly and uh, spouts off mm -hmm. and a bunch of uh, black academics, uh, I'm sorry, but uh, <laughs> it's going to sound like I'm joining your, your side. And I'm, I, hey, academic friends out there, I'm still on your side. But bottom line is we've got a lot of knuckleheads uh, running around saying a lot of uh, alienating stuff. If, if that's the way that the case gets presented, I grant you it's not going to persuade anybody. Yeah. But I really don't think those are the only alternatives and, uh, before and, us. And, you know, Glenn, I say this with sincere respect, but what's going to change it is also not fine writing such as yours where you say things like, what kind of a nation are we to not attend to, et cetera, et cetera. And the reason for that is because, and history is always interesting in these ways, yes, who would have known that there was going to be a feminist revolution? But one thing that we know now is that there already was a civil rights revolution. Something happened which you couldn't have seen coming even ten years before. It occurred. Everybody knows it. And we're at a point now where what you're implicitly calling for is a second revolution. You're not putting it that way. But the idea is that something dramatic and massive is going to happen again. And given that something already did happen, and that people's general opinion is that something happened, that racism is nothing like what it used to be, and even if life isn't perfect, it's time for people to just deal. We cannot combat the fact that that is going to be the main barstool opinion. We've talked about how really there needs to be a more nuanced position, and we can be on the sidelines assuring that the government puts people in a position to be able to help themselves, but that revolution that you're talking about I don't see how it could come again, and you must know what I mean in a certain way, especially given your particular history. There was a time when race issues were really hot. There were certain things that were on people's mind in a major yeah, way. Yeah, people getting tired about of welfare it. Form. Do you notice now that it's at the point yeah. where there's a kind of, it's kind of like a marble hitting on tin? Even my students, you know, uh, who are at the prime territory for proselytization on the liberal race front, are, are tired of it, tired. and you, you can see that. But I, I don't envision revolution, but maybe evolution of the following sort, okay? Mm -hmm. um, I like the program Teach for America. Mm -hmm. It's not a panacea, mm -hmm. but what it does is it takes privileged people for two, three years or whatever, and it gives them a way in which they can get into inner cities and try to make a difference in the schools. Sure. Um, I think that uh, adoption of uh, orphaned African-American American youngsters who are numerous, as you know, in, in our society and who go uh, without parents and are in a foster care system a or a set problem. of systems that are troubled, um, I think that it's not pie in the sky to try to say to people, you know, and uh, many of the people you'd have to fight about this would be African Americans, of course, again, as you know, who are going to have a certain 
oh, I know uh, uh, right. view. But to say to people, you know, look, these are American youngsters here. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you're about to go off to Romania or to um, uh, Colombia or uh, China. Right. Uh, what about adopting an American kid mm -hmm. and stuff like that? I, I, I maybe call me an idealist. You know, I used to be uh, much more of a Christian than I am now, but I think some of that uh, old-time religion still, oh, you know, yeah. uh, still is in my bones. I like this idea of envisioning, you know, a, a different kind of American community mm -hmm. where the lines of race can be blurred. And while you may be right to say preaching to white people, come on, America. It's the way that I don't want to preach to black people, come on black people, because I want to say, you know, there are many material, structural, economic, and historical forces, and you can't preach them away. Mm -hmm. Preaching to white people, come on, see blacks differently, is not likely to get me very far. I, I, I'm not sure that, you know, over time, in an evolutionary sort of way, we can envision uh, a growing different sensibility about this, and the acts of people like those who go into inner city schools or who adopt uh, different raced uh, orphans mm -hmm. uh, could, could contribute to that. That is uh, an idea that I had never given a whole lot of thought to, but obviously it's important. And in terms of evolution, maybe our role is just a matter of nudging things in directions that they could already be seen to be going. Here in New York, I go occasionally to, say, a KIPP Academy school, or one of the yeah. charter schools where you see thoroughly black kids inner-city black kids learning. Well, everybody's black. You can call it segregation, and yet everybody's doing yeah. just fine. Somehow that's not on the radar screen. I, I, it must be about once a month I see somebody on the subway reading Savage Inequalities, the book that says that <laughs> it's all about school funding. Well, and I think that we really need to call attention to the sorts of things that are working and that are replicable. Agree. We agree about that. And I think this is an excellent example. Uh, I know about the KIPP Academies, of course, uh, not least from Abigail and Stephen Thurstrom's fine book on That's right. Uh, education no policy, where they extol them. I know about them also because my friend Roland Fryer, the economist, uh, Roland. is doing some work with Kip. You know Roland? Uh, yeah, I've met, we had Roland speak the Manhattan Institute. Yeah. He's, he's wonderful. Yeah. So, so uh, that, you know, charter school, you know, uh, this kind of pioneering, innovative, institutionally innovative, conceptually innovative. Good civil rights uh, stuff. Uh, a pedagogically innovative thing. Yeah. This is a good thing. Yeah. Uh, more now, and more but, but I want to say something, and that is that there really are some issues of equity in educational finance. Some. And, John, and Jonathan Kozel's vituperations, you know, he's excessive. He's a polemicist. Mm -hmm. He's over the top on occasion, maybe more than on occasion. Yeah, more than on occasion. But, but, but to, I would hope, being the serious man that you are, mm -hmm. that you wouldn't exclude uh, the possibility mm -hmm. that alternative ways of financing education. We're the only country in uh, financing education mm -hmm. could deliver more uh, uh, equity and fairness to uh, yeah. disadvantaged American We're the only country in the world, John, who finances our schools from local taxes yeah. and not from the central fund. Yeah. And it creates a situation where if uh, one community is uh, is troubled with a, uh, you know, uh, families without many resources, without much of a tax base, with a, whatever, they simply can't deliver this, the same quality of education to their sure, kids. Sure, and this puts us in the exact same position as with the factories. Obviously, that's true, but it is so easy for people to take the sort of fist-in-the-air, us-against-them perspective of listening to what you just said and thinking of the money as larger than the other issues, such as quality of teachers, quality of teaching, um, schools of education. And I just, the schema in my mind is something like Kansas City, 1985, the usual inner city school disaster that you can imagine. They poured 
untold huge amounts of money into the system. One of the schools, one of the nine schools, even had a planetarium. I think three of the schools had fencing lessons. I mean, it was almost a cartoon of what you would do. Not a thing happened because it was the system itself that was broken and black kids still weren't learning. Now, instead of that, the mental schema that a lot of people have when they hear what you just said, which is true, is the black kids in the school with the peeling paint and the water fountain doesn't work and they're too on a textbook, which is often exaggerated, but that schema. And the idea being that if just that school would get money, that would take care of it. And the problem with that view is that even if that school did get money, all evidence, and Kansas City is just one case, is that nothing would happen and that there are different issues. And so my view of the schools is, yeah, you don't want to discount the money issues, but for many people, just bring it up, and that's all they really want to think about, and people will be people. Well, two points, and one is that money does make a difference, uh, but money plus bad governance is not going to make a difference. Mm -hmm. Bad administration, bad leadership, Precisely. bad vision bad is not going to make a difference. Yeah. So, so muscular reform that goes against what this or that teacher's union or whatever might want is probably, is almost certainly got to be a part of the picture. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't leave money out. And one, the, the other point is that, you know, um, I wouldn't spend the money on uh, fancy doodads. I would spend the money on personnel. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, why aren't our most talented and experienced uh, uh, educators the ones who are tasked with educating our hardest cases uh, in it terms of students? It's exactly the opposite. Yeah. It would seem the, the quality of teachers that you're able to get into inner city schools, and I don't mean to disparage because, of course, as uh, probably shouldn't need to be said, but I want to say anyway, there are many fine people. Uh, but the quality of teaching is abysmal relative to what it is that you would expect yeah. and demand in a suburban, not necessarily rich, uh, school or district. Yeah. You know, and don't we have an obligation? Uh, I, this is what I would argue, and I don't know if anybody's listening, but it feels right to me to to, to try to reallocate our resources so that the neediest students. Uh, get their needs attended to by the most talented people. That means, we, of course, we'd have to compensate them. Yeah. You know, not everybody is going to want to go into an inner city, but nobody's going to want to take a pay cut to go in there relative to uh, a leafy suburb where their lives uh, is, uh, might be much that easier. That is certainly one part of things, but then it's also part of things that it's being shown now in several states at this point, three to my knowledge, that when you have a voucher program, that actually starts taking kids out of a public school system, the public school system starts getting better because to the extent that money is not the issue and that it's a matter of what you're calling governance and what I would often call the culture of the school system, it's not that people don't know, it's that it's hard for an organization to move. It's kind of like the Titanic couldn't turn away from the iceberg. And so once there is an actual threat of the discontinuation of the structure that supported people, then often a difference is made such that I feel that calling for vouchers is not a right-wing position yeah. that I'm being told to support, but something that actually makes sense. Well, a, a lot of people agree with you about that. Uh, a lot of people ones. who are not, a lot of people who are black, and a lot of people who are not Republicans agree with you about that. And I happen to be one of them who says that competition in public, for public education, is a good thing. Mm -hmm. But, but you know, the Titanic was difficult to turn, and it also didn't have enough lifeboats for everybody. Mm -hmm. And I think the bailing out of public schools, while it may at the margin put enough heat under the fire, you know, enough. Uh, heat under the uh, seats of these uh, complacent educators to get them looking around and trying to deliver a better product. Most poor kids are going to be educated in public schools, as far as the eye can see, that just based on the fact that there are not enough lifeboats. That is definitely true, and therefore the charter school 
the whole charter school explanation, the whole charter school solution, can only do so well. Talk about pragmatism. I cannot see how most poor black kids would be taught in charter schools. And that means that we have to look at both solutions at the same time. What to do about the public schools and having the charter schools there, I think, almost usefully, not only for teaching kids well, but as that standing threat to stimulate people to do better in the public schools. Yeah. It's tough, though. It really is tough. Yeah, it is. So I, I, it looks like we're getting to the end of the hour here. Uh, Boy, that went by fast. I did, and wow. we didn't even talk about the good stuff. Man. <laughs> we, <laughs> I want to I want to argue Clarence Thomas with you. I understand you're a fan. You're a fan of Clarence, Clarence Thomas. Thomas. I think uh, that he's allowed to have his opinions, and I think it's well, absolutely... Well, come on. Who's going to disagree with that? The question is what those opinions are <laughs> and no, no, how wrong they are. No, he's allowed to have them. Actually, no, I, I, I don't know if I'm a fan of Clarence Thomas because I'm not a legal theorist. I don't pay okay, close enough attention. Enough. But I do think that if he is going to be a strict constructionist, then that means that certain things are going to fall out of that particular orientation of his, and he has a right to it. So he's got a biography now out, mm -hmm. an autobiography, and there's a biography of him. Uh, and when we have more time, maybe we can, you know, get into those books a little oh, bit. What do you we think? We must. We definitely must. Uh, excellent. Excellent. So, all right. Um, wow, what let's... fun. Mm -hmm. Gosh, this, this, we, this is fun. Wow. Yeah, big fun. Bloggingheads.tv. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, John, good talking to you. We'll talk again good soon. Good talking to you, Glenn. Take care. Bye.